Welcome back to Friends Like Us. Marina Franklin here, your host. This week on Friends. It's an honor to have her here, Tony L. Griffin. Most recently, Ms. Griffin was a professor of architecture and the founding director of the J. Max Bond Center on Design for the Just City at the Spitzer School of Architecture at the City College of New York. Tony has also held several public sector positions, including director of community development for Newark, where she worked with Cory Booker, New Jersey, Vice President, Director of Design for Anacostia Waterfront Corporation in Washington, D.C., and Deputy Director for Revitalization and Neighborhood Planning for the D.C. Office of Planning. She began her career as an architect with Skidmore, Owings & Merrill, LLP in Chicago, where she became an associate partner. Tony has published several articles and book chapters on the Just City, Legacy Cities, and Urban Planning and Design, and her work has been featured in publications, including Metropolis and Next City. She has lectured extensively in the United States, Europe, Africa, and South America, and has a 2015 TED Talk on Detroit. In 2016, President Barack Obama appointed Tony to the United States Commission of Fine Arts. Yes, and it's an honor to have her on Friends Like Us. Noye Brown-West is back. Yes, she is a Nigerian-American comedian and writer. She has been featured in the Boston Globe's Rise column as comic to watch. She has been heard or seen NPR, PBS, ABC, Sway in the Morning, and the New York Comedy Festival, as well as Marina's last virtual show, where she killed it. Yes, Don Boatman is back, or known as Don B. Yes, it's been way too long, like six years. That's ridiculous. Dawn is a comedian, host, actress, radio personality, hailing from Chicago. Shut down. Dawn began her career over 20 years ago. Dawn started traveling internationally and performing for the military. She has told jokes in Japan, the United Kingdom, and Haiti. Welcome back, Dawn. I want to thank all of our listeners of Friends Like Us. Because of you, we make some pretty impressive lists. You can hear us on Google Podcasts Now, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and Apple Podcasts. Review and rate us on Apple Podcasts. Subscribe. You can email us at friendslikeuspodcast at gmail. Our Instagram is friendslikeuspodcast, and our Twitter is friendslikeus10. Become more than a friend. Leave us a tip, donation. Go to our Patreon page where we have more content like one-on-one interviews like the recent one with Dr. Judith Joseph. Go to Patreon backslash Friends Like Us. Merch is available with the new logo. We have t-shirts, hoodies, coffee mugs, face masks available. Get yours today. Go to marinafranklin.com. Also, have you seen me on Hysterical? Men have been doing comedy for longer because women were expected to stay home, have children, and then die. We are socialized not to say the things that we want to say. I love you, but you know who I hate? Becky. <laughs> I'm seeing a lot of badass girls get into this field. We're all fueling each other, and it's becoming something bigger. Why, guys? You guys have had a pretty bad year. Hysterical. Now streaming. FX on Hulu. And weekly on my YouTube channel, I go live with my assistant, Evelyn, to give updates on the show. Shout out to fans who leave reviews. We have guest friends from the podcast. Sometimes drop it in. Those are available now, but soon they'll only be available on our Patreon page, where we offer free stuff like tickets to comedy shows. Maybe it wasn't my last virtual show. And with friends like us, it'll help you feel not so alone because more content is on the way. Most important, tell someone you know to check us out and wash those dirty little hands. Wear a mask, 
and Black Lives Matter. And welcome to Friends Like Us. Marina Franklin here, your host. Today, I have an excellent episode. I am so excited to have you here. Tony Noye Brown West is also here. Tony Griffin is a new friend to the podcast. She's excited. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Tony, you know, it's so great because I found you through my my uncle Buzz. I love that. Now we call we call him Buzz because I think he was born. It was my great grandfather. One of the world wars. Uh, I'm thinking too, where they hear the buzz going over his head during the war. So that's why they named him Buzz. I love Uncle Buzz already. <laughs> oh yeah, no, he's a he's a huge fan of yours. And then he he wrote me this email, and I I believe I told you he writes in like cap locks, right? And in bold. So I'm going to show you real fast what it, it looks like because I just want you to know. How, looks, how invested Oh my God, you mean the whole body of the text is in caps. Wow. Wow. Yes. That yes. is... Now, and in bold, um, you see that? And it, that is alarming and urgent. I think it's like 30 urgent. font. Wow. That's impressive. Yes. He, he does not know. I'm allowing it to continue. <laughs> well, I'm I'm super impressed that Uncle Buzz found his way somehow to me and then found a way to alarm you to my presence through that 32 font uh all cap email. So it's a real pleasure to meet you. <laughs> oh, it's a, it's just it's an honor cuz you're doing such great work. You are um in the You know, we started this podcast just talking, you know, with comedians. Noye is a very funny comedian, you know, and she um, she's one of my young stars, actually. And you are. (laughs) Thank you. You flatter me. Okay. (laughs) And this really is just a podcast where we're giving a space for women of color to talk, especially women that are funny. But we also learn to pivot during this time of the pandemic and to talk about real solutions. And we've been talking about like. Um, you know, ownership, where you want to live to be happy, quality of life issues, and you fall right into this segment. Now, just I, I do an intro at the beginning, but I just want to say, like, you know, Tony, she's a professor in practice of urban planning at the Harvard Graduate School of Design. She leads the Just City Lab, a research platform for developing values based planning method. Methodolo- I didn't go to Harvard. <laughs> Methal- methodology. methodology. Yeah, methodology. <laughs> <laughs> oh my. I, I did go to U of I. I went to Champaign campus. Maybe that was the problem. Come on, <laughs> Chicago Public School. You could do it. Oh, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> oh, I went to Dixon for like a brief moment. So did many of my friends. So you, I know you can do it. I know you can. Now you know about Dixon. That's why I can't read (laughs) methodologies, Um, including the 2017 Just City Index and a framework of indicators and metrics for evaluating social justice in public space. Wow. Because this is what we need. Mm -hmm. Can we give a shout out to my consultant practice too, Urban American City? Oh, absolutely. Excellent. Where I do this work uh, in a number of different cities around the country, 
including my hometown, Chicago, which I hope we get to talk about, but Detroit, Milwaukee, Memphis, Philly, Pittsburgh, St. Louis, I've had the pleasure of working in, you know, some of our, you know, real black spaces where there's both joy and challenge. Um, So I'm excited to be here with you and chop it up a little bit. Yeah, tell me, well, first off, what motivated you to start this and make uh, architect and and to move from architecture to urban design and planning? Yeah, so let's go back to the very beginning, which is, um, so I wanted to be an architect by the time I was 14. So it's influenced by a couple of things, which are humorous to me in retrospect. Um, So one is I was always drawing stuff. So my mother was a real big proponent of, you know, do what you love because you got to go to work and do this for a good chunk of your adult life. So you might want to choose something that you love and that you're good at. So I was, you know, good at drawing and stuff. So that was one indicator. Secondly, you know, those of you who were latchkey kids and came home after school and watched TV for two hours until your parents came home, you know, I was watching the Brady Bunch and I just thought Mike Brady's little den with his drawing desk and, you know, he had these drawings and colored pencils. I'm like, oh, that's his job. I want to do that. So I just thought that was really cool. And I thought their house was really slick. And then, you know, I went to Limbloom for high school and um, you had to take drafting there. Oh, hey, got a new person on. Um, So you had to take drafting as part of uh, your curriculum at Lindblom. And I took this class and one of my teachers saw I was really good at it. And he would enter my um, work into, you guys remember the AXO competitions that used to happen in Chicago? So I went into those and would win. And uh, with one of my guidance counselors, Uh, They found a program at University of Notre Dame where you could go between your junior and senior year, live on campus for three weeks and study architecture. So me and my best friend, who is also an architect in Chicago, went and encouraged my parents to apply. And then, you know, architecture it was. So that was my path. Uh, Came back after school, started working in a very large architecture firm in Chicago called Skidmore, Owings & Merrill. So they are the firm that designed the John Hancock Building and the Sears Tower. So I'd known about them before. So it was a really prestigious firm. And I was super psyched to have gotten that as my first full-time job. I did my summer internships in Atlanta. Um, And so they did all this large, you know, scale development projects around the world. Um, But then I got an opportunity to work on, remember when State Street in Chicago was a pedestrian mall and you couldn't drive down it? It was only for walking. Anybody remember that? And and so then they redesigned it to put cars back on the street. So the State Street you see today, I was a part of the design team that did that. So I just came back, you know, after college wondering, like, how come there's investment in some parts of the city and not in others in the same way? So, like, how can we make how come we can invest to make State Street look like this, but we can't invest to make King Drive look like this or 75th Street look like this or 87th Street? So I just began to, like, question, like, why do cities really look the way they do? And while, you know, I had always wanted to be an architect and design buildings, that's just a part of the equation of who decides how cities look, what they 
get invested in, what types of buildings you draw. And so that's when I made my pivot and I wanted to be on the other side of the table directing how that happened. So that, that was my path. That's incredible because, you know, Dawn, who is just joining us, is also from Chicago. So I'm sure she's hearing a lot of what you're saying and agreeing with it. And Dawn, welcome. Dawn is a, a, a very funny comedian, a veteran in the game, one that I reconnected with this weekend because I thought she said April Fool she was going to quit comedy. Comedy, yeah. And I called her and I said, no, you're not. And, 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 and it and was... So- one of the worst jokes I ever told. No, best. I'm <laughs> sorry, everybody. So, so she is from Chicago. She knows. Um, I mean, on the forefront of my mind, I always think about um, Cabrini Green and the Robert Taylor homes. And when those were torn down, where all those people went. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's... It, it's- yeah, it's a very complicated story um, because, you know, for many people, those places were the only homes that they had known for generations. And even though it was tough, they managed to build community there. For other folks, you know, it was not a great place to live uh, and it was really difficult. And, you know, those types of um, housing develops that we used to call the projects were never built for multiple generations to live in. It was built as temporary housing, the stepping stone to you earning enough to be able to afford and move into different types of housing. So, you know, the infrastructure was not set up for that type of tenure. Um, Housing authorities were not set up to be long-term property managers, and so they failed at it. Um, And so the only path to dealing with it ultimately was to tear it down. And in doing so, created a whole nother dislocation, right? Because those were neighborhoods where people were displaced to build the housing develops in the first place, and then they were dismantled again. And while there were better programs in this last version to try to find people, you know, housing, uh, which was mostly not in that same neighborhood, but in other parts of the city or the suburbs, it displaced a lot of people's sense of community. Um, and, and so people are scattered again. Now, what's interesting about that too is a lot of those folks that were displaced, um, one of the neighborhoods that they find themselves in now is South Shore. And, and so if you know Chicago, South Shore has some of the highest concentration of subsidized housing, not like in projects as we used to know them, but in things called vouchers where someone can take their voucher and apply it to a market rate, you know, unit with a tenant that uh, with a landlord who accepts it or projects that were built with that kind of public subsidy so that lower income families can live in it. But, you know, you just end up kind of displacing people to different parts of the community, oh, yeah. sometimes deepening, you know, the concentration of poverty, other times dispersing people. So, you know, it's, it's a mixed bag uh, in terms of how these things are got. Now, on some of those sites, like parts of Robert Taylor, they've been redeveloped, like close to 35th Street. And actually, my best friend who I was telling you about, who was also an architect, was one of the architects for some of that new housing that has come up there uh, that is, in some ways, created a, a better neighborhood and more diverse types of housing with diverse types of people. But it did end up displacing some some folks' sense of community uh, and Black folks are, you know, 
scattered about who used to live in those neighborhoods. They are scattered and not placing judgment, but some of these neighborhoods, like some of them are scattered into my neighborhood. Okay. And um, it's like 17 people per house. Like it's one house on my block. Okay. I don't know. The point of this story is. Oh, turn your alert off, Dawn. Oh, I'm so sorry. I'm, I'm, I have to, <laughs> he was reminding me too. I was like, uh oh. You know, I just had surgery and I don't know if I'm coming or going. Mm-hmm. You look good. I knew, I said, if anyone can function on, <laughs> on medication from surgery, it's you and oh you're my. doing fine. It's she did. She had back surgery. Oh, my goodness. You look, you look amazing. Yeah, you do. Okay. Thank you. But if I stand up, you'll be like, holy smokes, you should be in the hospital. But these people, so when you, did they give vouchers to everybody that left these um, homes, that left the projects? Because it made the communities a lot more scarier too. It's people like, it's more activity than it used to be on like- Yeah, I mean, well, yeah. Well, whoever held the lease of that unit, you know, should, it was eligible for some type of, other form of housing, whether it's a voucher or a subsidy or something like that. Now, those folks may have had the same 17 people in that three-bedroom unit when they were living in the housing development that they now brought to the house, right? So part of the problem is that there's just not enough affordable housing supply for people who need it, which is why you end up with households that have way more people living in them than the house was designed for. Now you talk about the 50 values. I think this is a good place to if uh, tell me if I'm wrong, Tony, you know, Tony's from a Harvard professor. So, you know, you could correct me at any point. I told her already, Dawn, that I went to Dixon and not to expect much. I'm just joking. All right. Are, are, are there Okay, one, are there more challenges with urban planning than, and is, take me through the 50 values. I think that's the most important and what that that means. Like, because it says here with researchers, um, you know, encompassing the 50 values, including empathy, diversity, beauty, access, adaptability, safety, meant to help communities have conversations about current and aspirational urban conditions. So. Yeah. So, you know, I, you know, I had spent 10 years practicing as an architect designing buildings. And then, as you said earlier, Marina, I sort of switched into urban design and planning. So I was working on projects of a bigger scale, like the neighborhood or a district. And so I also decided to leave, you know, the private sector and consulting to go work for cities. And so I started working for Mayor Williams in DC in the early 2000s. And then I had an opportunity to work for Cory Booker in Newark during his first term, you know, in the city planning department, because I wanted to be on the client side of the table of trying to figure out, well, who's deciding, you know, where we invest, what things should look like, what, how we should use this land for development. And so those were all really rewarding experiences working in D.C. at that time and then working in Newark. What was interesting, what was becoming interesting to me was that each of those cities, and I also spent some time working in Harlem, each of those cities had like the same problems. Like I kept like, okay, same challenge of concentrated poverty, lack of investment, urban blight, 
um, fears of gentrification, investment on one side of the town, not on the other, cities that were still really segregated by race and class. And so I just started asking myself, okay, like I've done some good work that I'm proud of, um, but is what I'm doing making any real difference, you know, around these issues? Because every city I work on has them. Um, And so I was just reflecting on maybe this isn't enough, like maybe design alone can't solve these problems. So that was one thing. The second thing was when you try to have the conversation around, you know, race and class and race in particular, you know, in a room where you're the only black person, because by the way, you know, there are only 500 Black women that are licensed architects in the United States out of 116,000, and I may be rounding up the number, right? So it's less. Oh my God! It's less in than the United States. in the United States. So there's less than two percent of of African Americans, men and women, that are registered licensed architects, and there's less than four percent that are Latinx out of the 116,000, right? So you know, I I'm in a profession where I am often the only Black girl sitting at, at the table. So you can imagine that when you're trying to talk about the condition, the existing condition of a place, and you need to recognize the sort of historic racist policies that segregated your city in the first place, and that you have to figure out how you're going to address that as a part of finding a new solution, that's very difficult, as we have all experienced it this year. But these are uncomfortable conversations as we're all sort of experiencing just in 2020, like how hard it is to talk about race, how much people want to kind of jump into this language of being anti-racist and so forth. But it's not easy when you're sitting around a table with people who are different from you. It's uncomfortable. So I created, we created this um, language called the Just City Values, which is what you're referring to. So it's 50 values that we hope give people a broader vocabulary of talking about their own self-interest. In my profession, people want to talk about designing for equity or designing for resiliency or designing for sustainability. But then when you ask them, what does that mean? Like, what does equity mean to you? People can't describe it. And I don't think, I think equity is about distributing things fairly equally, maybe. Justice is about correcting a wrong and then repairing that, right, equitably. And so I wanted people, whether they're in Chicago or Johannesburg or Medellin or Rotterdam, to come up with their own aspiration for what they needed to get to like a just city. So the vocabulary is so that people have access to more language, so they can be super specific about what their aspiration is. And just thinking that if people could talk about their shared values first, particularly if you're at a table with people who are different than you, that maybe that would facilitate a better outcome, right? Because I find that we all share more common values, even though we're different than trying to sort of debate whether or not you get 50 units of affordable housing versus 80, right? Because that's just like, it, it's a winners and losers game where values can be a way to talk about the both and. So that w- that's why we created it. I love it because it's, I think, and, and Dawn, you, I think you had a question, but I want to say that you're right. 
because we're all going back. Things are about to open again. And I was telling Noye, I had, and I told Don, I have a little anxiety about going back into white spaces where I used to be very quiet. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm going to have to figure out like what you were just saying. Mm-hmm. Like, even as I'm talking about this documentary I'm on called Hysterical, they commonly, it's, it's a lot of white women in the room. Mm-hmm. Yes. A lot of white women when we're talking. And a lot of times I'll go right in. I say, you know, well, black women, we don't get this, but I can feel them just <laughs> dropping out of listening to me as I address it in that very real passionate way. And I'm like, maybe I'm not using the right vocabulary to get this across. And I often th- I often feel like, why do I always have to work so hard to get them to understand my basic need in life? my my de- my basic you know need for quality of life yeah well i sort of find find too uh and i'm sorry don if you had a question you want to you can jump in well yeah, i'm slow i'm forgetting but now i have another thought though about this being the only black woman because i went to mother macaulay high school mm-hmm. i often was the only black chick in class but i really didn't know it like because all my n-words was white but <laughs> Um, and so then I um, got older. My friends still tease me to this day that I'm so crossover. You, I always love the whites. I'm like, I didn't necessarily love the whites, but I know how to get along with the whites. And then I got married, okay, to a Marine. And on base, it's straight up white woman. And what I did learn is not to pull my, because my, my sex card is bigger than my race card. It's because I'm a woman. It's what I always go for. But I learned to now operate just like them. Oh, just like them. I'm a very white woman. And call me a white woman. I don't care. Because I'm going to get and do the same thing. I get the same results. I will get labeled initially. I think Marina thought I was mean too when we first met. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm literally the nicest person. But I have this. I guess I have this look like mean girl, angry black woman, and I am so. Well, well, I mean, it's all about, you know, the fact that, you know, people register your identity with that first impression of which is what you look like. And so we have women and black, right? That's the first thing you see. There's no way to register my other identities, unless you spend some time talking to me. And that's like part of our problem, right? And so how do you begin to facilitate some dialogue to recognize that not only do I have multiple identities, uh, but white women, you do too. Oh, absolutely. Right? And so it's not, it, you know, we all have multiple identities. So, you know, one of the things that we I do in one of my classes, and that we do this the first day of class, that I ask the students to, and so I teach in a design school, right? And so, um, and this is a group of students who are training to be urban planners. So we do these things called cognitive maps. So we have a worksheet and I ask the students to draw their neighborhood when they were 10 years old. And, you know, some of them can draw, some of them can't, and that's not what the exercise is about. It's about using your memory to diagram places where you were, like, where did you go to school? Who were your friends? Who was around? What did it look like? How far were things? So they do that. And then I ask them to describe what values were present in that neighborhood. And so they do that. And then they do it again for the neighborhood they live in now. Now, the interesting thing is the first neighborhood is the, par- the neighborhood your parents chose. 
the second neighborhood is the neighborhood you chose as an adult. And so then they compare the values that show up. And what comes up for the students is um, that they often make choices about where they want to live with different values than they had. So they're forced to recognize like, oh, right. Like, oh, there was nobody like that, that was different from me. So I've now chosen to live in a place where there's more diversity or, oh, you know, there wasn't um, public transportation. Oh, now I really want that because I have access to a car. So that's one way they start to register like these, the way different values show up. The second thing we do is I do a series of self-identity exercises. And so the first one is just around the stuff you would do at a cocktail party, like what skills are you good at? You know, what's your favorite movie? Stuff that doesn't require any vulnerability. The second one, you begin to ask about, you know, your sexuality and they don't have to fill in anything they they don't want to. How do do they self-identify? And then the second question is, how do others self-identify you? And it's really interesting to see how People of color or women uh, self-describe themselves through attributes um, of their body, like uh, woman or role. Like, so it's woman, it's sister, it's mother. Men of color will do something comparable. White men will tend to describe their self-identity through skills. I'm a surfer. I'm a baseball player. Yeah. So it's really interesting to see how we see ourselves and then how others see you. What do white women say? Um, the white women take on roles, right? So like, so they want gender and roles are things. That like wife, say. mother, things like yeah, that probably. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I always hear white no, women describe yeah, themselves that way. Yeah. So they, they may prioritize role first. And I was like you, Don, you know, especially in my 20s. I was, I think I was... And, you know, and I went to Notre Dame, right? So growing up on the south side of Chicago, I went to Wendell Smith. Like, you know, everything I needed was black, right? You go to Notre Dame, it's completely opposite. I I did fine. I had a wonderful experience there. I would come home in the summer, too, and see my cousins. And they'd be like, why are you talking white, right? So I'm like, you know, it's like like that, right? Um, So... On on that part, you know, white women and black women were kind of doing the same thing. But here's another kind of quick story. So I did this convening um, with about 40 or 50 different kinds of design professionals, black, white, different generations, different um, types of organizations. Um, And it was specifically to talk to them about, like, is justice different from equity? And how do we talk about justice in our work? Can we really push the envelope and kind of get there? And so one of the early questions I asked people was, have you ever experienced an injustice in your life? And of course, all the Black folks raised their hand and none of the white folks did. I said, so I find that really interesting. And I don't know if that's because people are only tapping into one of their identities. I said, so let me ask again and ask you all to think about your gender. Has anyone in this room experienced any injustice? So now all the women, black and white, are raising their hand. I was like, so this is the point, you guys. Like, we can't have this conversation if you think this is only about a black-white conversation. You got to tap into all of your identities to unpack the ways in which we probably experience things, even though they're different. And right, and there's this all this guilt with, well, my injustice isn't as great as yours. Like we, like if we're going to build empathy, I can't judge that. You can't judge that. 
I got to get to know you in the same way that you get to know me. I didn't invite you all here, white folks, to just observe Black folks in conversation. I invited you here to reveal yourself through any identity you choose in the same way that Black folks tend to do that anyway. Like we're always telling stories, right? We're always sort of putting ourselves in the conversation and then making the point. At least I find I do that a lot. I do it. I just did it. (laughs) Right. And it's just, it's like instinctive, right? Like, and I think it's because we need to be understood in white spaces. So you, like, there's just like, okay, let me tell you like where this comes from. And then let me, let me tell you the point. Um, white people don't have to do that perhaps. And therefore they can remain a bit of a, a enigma in, in professional spaces or whatever, because they don't have to account for their identity. But I think more of that has to be required. So kind of going back to your conversation, you know, your example, Marina, like, you know, how can you get these white women to recognize they're more they, than one thing, too? If they are the minority, they do. Like, if it's more black women than white, then you will find that white women start explaining and um, trying to accommodate just because, especially with everything that's going on in the world. And I know this probably is like going back because this is the question that I did have. Like when you go in and you say that you want spaces to like King Drive and and places to look like that, what do they say? Like, no, black people don't walk. Black people don't shop in mall. Like, what do they say when you try to get black communities to look like downtown? Well, I mean, if I. <laughs> Great question, Dawn. Um, what do they say? I think no, no, no. No, I'm trying to think about what they said then and what they say now. I feel like at the time that I was practicing in Chicago, that was actually starting to happen. And for whatever you liked or disliked about the last mayor daily, he actually did start investing in like streetscapes. Like there's flowers and planters on 95th Street by. Um, Chicago State University, where I had never seen them before. There's now this huge Bronzeville arch, you know, right as you come under the underpass by McCormick Place on King Drive. It had like this investment of plantings and street furniture and, and things like that. So sometimes there are points in these cities where there is this awakening. You start to see a redistribution of investment in areas that hadn't happened before. Now, sometimes that is triggered by some other investment happening and the government is kind of following behind. But sometimes it's the government saying, "Okay, we need to start investing in here. And there are multiple reasons why they do. And then the market follows. So so in my career, I feel like in each of these positions I've had, I've been there at the sweet spot where that was starting to happen. And my job, particularly when I was in government, was to push it into those spaces. And I feel like that I had some success in doing that. Now, if you look back at my work in DC, you know, I can look back and go, all right, so a lot of the work I did, which from a design perspective, I love, but it's a really changed city now demographically, right? Because it is much more expensive. Uh, it is no longer chocolate city by about eight percentage points because they're just it's under 50%. 
difficult to navigate around DC. Everything is in a circle. <laughs> the next circle, the next circle, the next circle. Oh, yeah. Isn't A, B, C, D, C, like, you know, all the streets are labeled A, B, C, D, E, F, G. And, and you, yes, <laughs> until you hit one of those diagonals and yeah. it's a little bit crazy. <laughs> Um, now, Noye, were you going to ask a question? I, I was going to ask ex exactly what she just said. I was going to say, but does that change the demographic? Because in college, I worked for the mayor of New Bedford, uh, historic preservation, and I, I was an anthropology major. And so that was part of my research. And I saw them use my research to change the demographic, to bring in college students, get rid of families that had lived there for generations. And then New Bedford, Massachusetts, uh, under Obama, became the hotbed for deportations. So if they couldn't get them out with the changing of the city, they got them out by deporting them, which is insane because a lot of those families, even though they weren't citizens, had been, you know, they their families had been there for a long time, even if they weren't citizens. So they were yes. just coming to join their families. Yeah, I mean, it's true. There are definitely examples where governments use investments in areas that have been historically disinvested in to try to push the market yeah. uh, into those areas that do create changes. They do create more value. They do create opportunities for different types of development, which increase land values, which increase taxes, which bring more taxes to cities, right? So there's this kind of macroeconomic argument that that's a strategy to help bring more revenue into your city. Uh, and this is, you know, what most people call gentrification, right? Uh, which is putting capital into an area such that there is some economic value to that. And a lot, there are times where that creates a displacement. Now, there's an interesting study, just to be a little bit wonky, that was done a few years ago that looked at a hundred of the country's census tracts that were in poverty in the 1970s. So the census tract is this, this weird little boundary that's drawn around a collection of blocks. And that's how we count population, right? So census tract. So in 1970, they looked at a hundred census tracts that were in poverty. By 2014 or 15, I think was the date of the study, only 10% of those had gentrified. Right. So people talk about gentrification all the time. So you think it's this really prevalent thing that happens. This study showed that only 10 percent of those neighborhoods had gentrified, meaning 90 percent of them were still neighborhoods of poverty. So this is really where we should be spending more of our time talking about and how are we helping people in those neighborhoods and how are we improving those neighborhoods? So Marina, you had mentioned, you know, at the top of the show talking about ownership. So just to kind of tie this back to justice and the just city, one of the things that I'm really interested in my work right now that I'm actually trying to work on in Chicago is how can we invest in deepening different forms of ownership for people in neighborhoods like this such that they have their equity stake in place so that when investment comes, they can realize the upside of it, not be pushed out of it, right? Who doesn't, if any of our parents own a home, right? You want that home to retain its value. You want it to accumulate value. You want to be able to pass that value on to your kids. This is generational wealth. This is what some people in our country have been able to do all of their lives for multiple generations. African-Americans have not. 
there have been public policies that have denied them access to land and ownership and therefore generational wealth. So where I think, you know, people who do work like I have to focus on is how are we dismantling those things that have limited Black folks and people of color from attaining wealth? And instead of always worrying about the displacement part, what can I do early on so they get a piece of that pie through ownership? That can be land ownership, home ownership, developing projects, owning businesses, growing businesses, so that you can participate in, you know, the American dream. And you just segued into one of our articles Beautifully. Thank you, Tony, about anti-gentrification ordinance passed in Chicago in an effort to prevent further gentrification. Chicago City Council recently passed a measure which will impose a 15,000 fee on developers who tear down single family homes and multi-unit buildings in Pilsen and surrounding neighborhoods. The fees collected from this ordinance will go into the Chicago Community Land Trust, an initiative which will help low and moderate income Chicagoans achieve home ownership. Though the fee in the ordinance are lower than the original proposed, and I mean a lot lower, proponents of the measure argue that they are necessary to prevent developers from tearing down affordable housing and thus displacing families. Passage of this ordinance is a victory for Chicagoans fighting for integrated and diverse neighborhood says alderman carlos ramirez rosa now i this they're also talking about like logan square area and they by the way the pay, the fee is fifteen thousand. um um that's the fee for tearing down a single family home and multi-unit buildings will incur a fee of five thousand per unit so we're talking about also the areas of logan square in chicago bucktown west humble park and I know because my sister lived in Logan Square and I would always go visit her. And my best friend, Isis, which I don't say that in the airport, by the way, but um, uh, she. she... Uh, <laughs> no, oh, look at you. No. You can't look. Back pain and laughter. No. But um, she lives in Logan Square. And I saw her, the, the price of her, where her mother lived, I saw it go up. And so I noticed this is a conversation. You do kind of want some gentrification because it raises the property value. But like you were saying, what happens to those? How do you? Yeah. You know, like we, it's such a complicated um, dynamic beak and uh, which often only gets spoken about through like home and housing. Right. And so first, I just want to say, you know, we need a combination of things like that and other things working together to address, you know, the dynamic of different price points for housing, uh, the ability for someone to own and rent and find choices either way. Um, For people of color in particular who've been denied equitable equity. Uh, in in their assets to be able to have access uh, to that. And ultimately, it's about people having choice, right? The choice of if this is my income, then I'm not regulated to only having two neighborhoods I can go to. I should have eight, right? You should have all of them. And so the combination of the supply of affordable housing or housing in general access to capital so that you can afford a mortgage, 
quality neighborhood so you have more choices of where you want to live based on the amenities and transportation and parking and all those things that are a factor in how you decide where to live. And also income, that you have wages that pay you an income that allow you to have more choices. So ultimately, it has to be a combination of policies and practices like the one that you just described that all have to be working at the same time in order for the the greatest amount of people to have the benefit of all of those choices. So in that example, what you find is you know, they're creating a revenue stream that can be used for families to access mortgages or capital for home ownership. Or maybe it's going into a fund that can be used for developers who build affordable housing, right? So the, so I think, you know, the concept of it is right. Uh, and, and as the article says, you know, I think the original proposal had it at $300,000 per home, right? Yeah. So there was a lot like, of... You ain't doing this. Right. So, <laughs> you know, and it always starts out as a negotiation. But I think it's important to also note that that can't be the only thing, right, that's happening. It has to be a combination of different tools and strategies and policies that have to be operating at the same time because, you know, it, it's a large-scale problem that affects a lot of people. So there's also this other article that I put in here, which goes hand in hand with what you're saying. And I may be repeating some things over again. I'm sorry. But reparations in Evanston, which I was like, oh, do I need to go back to Illinois to get my reparation? (laughs) Um, On March 22nd, officials in Chicago suburb of Evanston voted to release the first batch of funds in a program offering reparations for black residents whose family have felt the effects of decades of discriminatory housing practices. We had to do something radically different to address the racial divide that we had in our city, which includes historic oppression, exclusion, and divestment in the Black community. Alderman Robin Rue Simmons told CNN this. The first initiative of the $10 million plan is the Restorative Housing Reparations Program that would distribute up to $25,000 for housing per eligible resident, with funding expected to come from the 3% tax on recreational marijuana sales. Now, Tony, what are your views on reparations? And do you think this plan sounds like it's going to help a, a mass group or just a small minority? Is it, is there, is there devil in the details? Is what of I'm course. Saying? Well, I mean, I think the, the article is pretty transparent about um, that. It is uh, like a pilot, right? That it is not going to, help um, the larger community of Evanston that can demonstrate that their family lineage uh, suffered from those discriminatory practices. Um, There's just not enough in the pot right now to do that. But I think you have to step back and commend them for piloting the approach, for being very clear that this is about, this is a reparative strategy to redress the harm that we had a responsibility in creating. And so, you know, you're not hearing a whole lot of cities talking about that. And so I think it's really important uh, and significant that it is named as such and that it is attempting to do that. And hopefully it can be something that can scale up, not only in Evanston, but I think actually take root, you know, across the country 
because there are very few American cities uh, that did not have discriminatory public and private real estate practices that intentionally excluded and extracted Black folks from different parts of the city. That's just a fact. I just want to say this before. I love you, Tony. I have so many goddamn questions. I have no idea. I know you want to get out soon, but I got to ask you a lot of questions. I just, you know, the reason I'm also doing this with you and I, and I've told you already is because I live in Harlem from Chicago. I've seen the gentrification in Harlem. One of my best jokes is about how you know, when I first saw ripe tomato, I knew that they were coming white people. Right. <laughs> so I knew that that was a big, that I didn't realize the, 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 the seriousness of that joke was that me from Chicago moving to Harlem, not realizing I was also a gentrifier, which you talk about, right. like I didn't really grow up in Harlem. I didn't have the, the, the pain of growing up in Harlem, but I was seeing some things that I just couldn't believe growing up in the suburbs of Chicago. Like I, I grew up in Highland Park and then I grew up, the, you know, and then I grew up in the South suburbs like Park Forest, Richmond Park, High, you know, home with Flossman. So I was able to have access to, you know, a tomato that looked like a tomato, uh, you know, grocery stores. Not until I came to Harlem was I experiencing something that I had no control over and didn't know what to do. And I don't think until maybe this year, this pandemic, did I realize I could go to my community board and talk. I can, I can deal with the, the, the restaurant beneath me, which everyone knows I complain about constantly. You know, Tony, this is how we got started. I do. It's a white owned restaurant and yet they are allowed to get away with, I feel, I don't know, but it seems that they can do a lot more. They have a lot of connections, political connections, than a lot of the black-owned restaurants in the neighborhood. And then what's and then they're also, you know, obviously disrupting my quality of life with sound, with noise, with um, possibly toxins coming from whatever they're doing in the back. I don't know. And a generator that runs when when we don't have the noise from the crowd, we then have the generator that sounds like a lawnmower in the back. Now. This is the first time where I was like, I need to get involved. I need to find out how I can get, you know, I guess it's my civic duty. Your you rights. Know, but my rights. And also, you know, I go outside, I see inside this restaurant, it's filled with black folks who don't even know about the fact that this is, uh, yeah, it's good food. Yes. I, did, I didn't know you were suffering when I was there eating my um, linguine and clam sauce. <laughs> oh, no. I'm so very sorry. <laughs> Well, the food is excellent. It Not is. even arguing about the food. But the thing is that Spike Lee's been in there, celebrities go in there, but no one knows that the owners, and I mean this, one of them, not all of them, and I'm generalizing and I'm, I don't know her, but really does not care about the community in the way I need her to care about the community around her. She's a white woman. She does not live she, in her defense of all of this. She says it's not loud to her. I'm, I asked her, I said, where do you live? She lives on Fifth Avenue. She doesn't live in the community. Well, we are on the community board meeting and, they, and she's talking about, she just kind of tosses it out there how she does this thing for the homeless. The woman on the community board, one of the board members says, that's lovely what you're doing, but we don't have documentation of this. <laughs> wow. Um, and 
they throw out the one, you know, you know, and I'm glad that they've employed someone who owns the new bar. He's black and he's partner and that's great, but that can't be just the example that you just throw out there to keep your business. And so I'm trying to, so Tony, the deeper I go into this with the community board, with talking to folks, it's crazy. You got politicians attached that I didn't know. This is what happens though to black people. Black people see that it's a lot of work and we stop. We don't go all the way, the full out extent. White women will sit there all day. We, that's the problem we have in our own communities. We don't go fully. We just, we just go. We, well, we get I'm the, the Karen. Quit. <laughs> I am the Karen and I've accessed my other Karens. I've accessed the other local Karens. There's one beneath me. I'm Karenita. I am Karenita. <laughs> she, she was the first joke. One of the jokes I used to do about how I, when I moved to Harlem, this white woman told me to turn my music down, you know, and I was like, this is a black neighborhood, you know, go back to where you came, you know, but I was playing Simon and Garfunkel, right? And so I really <laughs> But here's the thing, that joke, while it's very funny, it gets deeper. We're now friends. That woman in that joke is the woman beneath, we're both working together on posting signs and <laughs> dealing with this restaurant. So I guess I say all this to say, in Harlem right now, Tony, where do you see the challenges? And where's the where where can someone like me go? I need help. Well, you know, it, it, well that example raises just so many things, but it makes me think about my own block club. Um, so since the pandemic, you know, New York had this um, open street permit, right? Because we couldn't go outside, we couldn't recreate. So, and, you know, not every neighborhood in, in Manhattan in particular has close access to open space, right? And we were all getting claustrophobic. So your block could apply for a permit to close your street so that, you know, you can leave your house and just kind of hang out like in your like we all used to do as kids. So our block did that. And my block, I've been on my block 10 years now. Uh, and it has definitely, the complexion of the block has definitely changed. Uh, that I would say, I, don't, I won't quote the percentage of it, but you see many more white faces uh, amongst the black faces that, that are here, more kids. Uh, so it's been really interesting to watch. I remember like our second Halloween looking out the window at, and, and we live in a historic district too. So our block is always like gussied up with cool Halloween decorations. So I, I remember looking out my window and I didn't see any black kids amongst all the kids. It was the craziest thing. Like, this is really interesting. Anyway, that's another story. So the Black Club is is fairly mixed. Uh, and they asked me if I would hope, and they do a lot of programming. They had DJs. There's a musician on the block, so he would bring his band. And it's been really fun, but also a really interesting experiment in how longstanding neighbors, new neighbors, Black neighbors, white neighbors, American neighbors, foreign neighbors are all sort of commingling in this New Harlem, right? And, you know, you and I live in central Harlem, which is where you're seeing like the most change. You should know that, you know, there's still parts of upper Harlem or East Harlem that have not changed quite like this. But anyway, so it's, it's been interesting to watch how they come together. Um, and so there's, there was a moment where um, 
So they do film nights. And I think they showed, I can't remember what film it was. It wasn't 12 Years a Slave, but let's say it was some movie like that. And one of the Black neighbors was telling me that she was really disappointed that none of the white neighbors actually came to this movie. And she could actually sort of see them standing around, but not coming to watch it. And she was felt really hurt by that because they had spent all this time in, you know, planning and so forth. But then they sort of center this movie that would allow them to start to go a little bit deeper within their relationship and social contract. And people pulled off, you know, put the hands off the wheel. I bring that up because like the example that you just described by now saying that you and your downstairs Karen are friends and you see that that you're in this together is (laughs) the, 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 the notion that in choosing to come and move into a neighborhood, right, that is historically Black, that you know has had this disinvestment, that you know you're bringing in a new valuation of it just by the color of your skin or the income in your pocket, you should bring some kind of awareness of the agency of your voice, right? Because we know that, you know, now that the neighborhood has changed demographically, making a phone call to the cops, the response time is a little longer, even though, you know, people have been having this problem for so long. There was a really active Black association here. Were they having the same results as efficiently 10 years ago as they're having now that the complexion is changed? So you can't deny that we place a different value on people and their pocketbooks differently, which is the unjust situation, right? So when we're gentrifiers and we come in this space, what is our civic responsibility to use that voice, you know, in support of the larger neighborhood, not just my, my needs, right? And how do I acclimate myself to, you know, the classic example from Spike Lee's father about the drum circle, that just because you don't like that does not mean that's wrong. <laughs> you chose to move here to a neighborhood that has a culture. You need to acclimate, right? Um, so all of these things to me, all these things, I'm sorry, all these things to me just make up what is the more complex aspect of neighborhood change and gentrification on top of the kind of economic one. I'm sorry, Don, you wanted to say something. I mean, I lived in Brooklyn for 12 years, about 10 years ago. I can't remember. So now I'm back in Chicago. Do you have aldermen? Like, we have aldermen, you know, for the neighborhoods, the precinct, and you can go. No, like, they're, they're, they're called councilmen, and we have these borough presidents. So each borough has a president, and then there's a council. Um, the, like a, a, They're called community boards. Right. So, yes. Which I'm on, yeah. which I've been going to for like four or five months. No, no. I let me tell you something. This has been such a valuable lesson about what and why I'm so impressed with you, Tony, because we don't know any of this stuff until we have to really, really deal with it. We don't know it. And so like where it is that the black community doesn't know that they have a civic duty. We should be involved in our community board. We should know that it's the borough president. We should know our borough president. We should know our our local um, senator. 
which I now know. And I know that he goes and he eats in that restaurant. I know everything, <laughs> you know, I mean, and look, I know Miss K on the community board. She'd be up in there like side eyeing, you know, but I need to know. And I know some of the restaurant owners are also on the community board. So to protect their restaurant. So these are the things that I'm like, so the way I'm living the way I'm living, because I don't know this stuff. If we all knew this stuff, we could make our living better. I mean, why this information, why I'm just like at my age, just like figuring this out is like, what can we do to help you, Tony? This is one of my uncle's big, <laughs> bold, cap locked. Oh, this is what he wanted you to ask me. This is what I say about Buzz's... that too. It looks like he typed uh, it with like acrylic uh, nails on. Uh, <laughs> look at that. Going at it with his acrylic nails and his bubble gum. <laughs> and he tried to give me advice on how to host my own podcast, well, which is, I'm also, I, I don't know. I'm also impressed that it looks like you're holding multiple pages. Oh, like no, he, no. You required I had a paper clip. Like, oh, he, like he had a lot. But oh, it's, he says, aunt. <laughs> he, I want, I want you to know that he would say, I would start out by asking her, what is the most important message she would give to the public? That's in, he goes, why would I ask that first? Simply because most people's, I mean, he really tries oh to direct God, how me. Thoughtful. You should have invited him to be on the podcast. I, oh, I, he wouldn't, he wouldn't come. He wouldn't. Oh, really? Oh. He, he was like, you need Uncle to sit with come on. Uncle, Uncle Buzz. Uncle Buzz. <laughs> <laughs> Right. Uncle Buzz is very, you know, he's a doctor. He's like 70 years okay. old in LA. It's, it's right. like his, his time is very, you well, know. Uncle anyway. Buzz, my response to your very good question, I think would be, and I think I'd like to be really specific just to kind of tie it back really into your experience, which is, you know, I think in 2020, my realization of still how much I'm learning about our country, our history in this country, the development of cities, in some ways astonishing to me, like that I didn't know some of what we're learning, you know, that stories of Greenwood, right, are, are not something every person knows happened, right? So there are all these histories and American histories that we're learning. And so I think those of us who are in space and have the platforms to continue to expose people to the truths of our history is so really critical. And then I think the second thing is to find ways that you can engage in your community. And certainly this last year being on lockdown has forced us to rely on community in so many different forms and so many different ways. I'm both nervous and anxious to see how that what if that stays in place as we go back into the world? Like, how soon is that just going to dissipate in our memory and we go back to some practices that were not as healthy to us? Um, and how much of what we've learned about our humanity and our need for one another um, we can kind of push into our, our new normal. So if it's going to a community meeting, if it's, you know, just reading your local newspaper, if it's asking a question, if it's, you know, whatever that is, um, I just try to find ways to stay engaged in the places where you live. Because if we don't use our voice, like we can't make change. And I know that there's deep skepticism about, 
you know, the ways in which our democracy shows up. But, you know, I don't know what the alternative is. And so we just got to stay engaged at whatever level you can. Yeah, Don, what were you saying? Yeah, we have to stay engaged because, like you said, in the pandemic, excuse me, I really was in my neighborhood a lot. But I got in touch with the alderman and he helped me find places for my drive-in comedy show. Um, He helped, you know, like, I didn't know some of these resources were available. And what I just started doing is sometimes now sharing it on even Facebook, because it looks like our neighborhood is only full of 80 year old people. And it's like (laughs) young people here. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I hope we can retain some of the ways in which we've, you know, connected out of survival, but now let's stay connected out of the survival of, you know, getting towards more just cities. And um, yeah, so that that's that would be my advice. So I'm not going to call 311 too much. Now, this is a question that I actually, I do want to ask about. Um, but before that, Noye, I just want you to know about Noye. Noye is from Boston. So she has oh, a yeah. totally different experience, yep. right? I With, saw that um, eye roll. You understand what that means. <laughs> it was a, more like a side eye, not a roll. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, I thought I'd give you that moment, Noye, to just tell her about your experience in Boston, living wise and where, because I, I was curious about yeah. where you grew up and, I, uh, so I grew up kind of all over. My parents are immigrants, so we wouldn't, you know, we wouldn't qualify for the, um, reparations and I accept that, but we, uh, we moved from Alabama to, you know, to Connecticut, to, uh, Delaware, to Maryland. And then we settled in a suburb outside of Boston. But then as I got older, I lived in, in Boston city limits, city proper, lived in Somerville, lived in West Roxbury, lived in... Ooh, they do uh, <laughs> they do all that they can to disenfranchise the black community in Boston. And it's yeah. <laughs> I I I I'm curious to see what you would say about Boston as a city. I worked for the CTL lab at MIT too, where they yeah, where they talked about city planning and all that, but it never seemed like they were working on local communities. But I've heard of some new programs, new uh, organizations popping up, like neighborhood developers up in Medford, where they're trying to give back to those communities. They're trying to uh, teach people who grew up in those historically Black communities in Boston how to develop their own communities. And they give in, and they find them grant money and vouchers and programs. Yeah. Well, let me just first say um, that the acting, the new acting mayor of Boston is now a black woman, um, which is kind of extraordinary. Uh, Sounds like she's hinting that she's going to make a run for it when the election hits. Um, And we just did a program at my school called the Mayor's Institute on City Design, the Just City Fellowship, and the mayor of Framingham, which is just outside of Boston, their first mayor is a Black woman as well. So part of my kind of response is, like, where are we showing up in leadership? Now, look, you know, I got as close to being as politician as I could by being a city planning director, but it's just a job I could not do. But I have 
deep admiration, particularly for people who want to be mayors of cities, right? Because um, that's just an extraordinary and what I think a heroic job to take on that could be like, you have to just give your life to trying to get something done. Um, but there's also a lot of agency in what they could do. And so I'm super excited to see, you know, where she might take policy and direction uh, giving someone who knows and lives, she, you know, she was one of the kids who was bused during their really tumultuous, you know, school busing days, which was, it was deep. Um, so I, really I grew up in one of the white flight towns, Marshfield. Yeah. Every okay. day was racism. It was yeah, crazy. I mean, so, you know, it's just a place where, you know, not unlike Chicago, but it felt more uncomfortable to me when I was there. Like, it, it's like there's more tension around the racial dynamic that you feel viscerally in Boston than I feel like in Chicago. Now, maybe that's because Chicago's bigger. I could spend weeks at a time not seeing a white person <laughs> if I didn't want to live in a, growing up on the South side. That's right. It's smaller. So that, you know, that interception is a bit more frequent, therefore a little more tense. I don't know what it is, but I, you know, I was there one year for school and I commute. You know, I, I travel up to Boston to teach and then come right back to New York because it just didn't feel like a place that was for me to live. Um, and I think, you know, what I've sort of seen in different cities that I've lived in, you know, regarding the kind of dynamic that you described is, you know, there has been this intentional depression of voice and agency and le leadership in, in cities like this, right? And so... How is that reclamation beginning to take shape and form? You know, super interesting watching what's going on in Georgia, right? Where you're claiming these significant seats of power, which is freaking people out and they're coming out swinging. But, you know, that's the kind of work that has to happen to dismantle uh, and create the kind of equity that we're talking about, which takes these courageous people leaning into these kind of spaces that the average person <laughs> you couldn't pay to take. But we got to show up in so many different kind of spaces. So even this podcast and you somehow inviting me on to be in conversation with you guys is an act of resistance. It is, you know, public service announcement. It is sharing knowledge through all these different platforms. So I think, you know, during COVID, we've all been super creative about you know, kind of creating content and access and kind of blending the kind of conversations that we need to. But that's the kind of hard, hard work it's going to take because there are these, you know, Don, you were sort of talking about, you know, at a certain point, Blacks sort of give up and, you know, we just tend to go about our business. But it's because, you know, there's a weariness, like I'm, you know, freaking tired. Like I can't do this by myself. And there's a complacency and there was systems that were designed to like get you to that place of complacency. So you would not fight back, but yeah, just can't do it. Oh, I'm feeling, yeah. I'm feeling it. I'm, <laughs> we, I am feeling know? it in this apartment building because everyone has moved. Um, everyone who was like, I just, I don't have the energy to fight. I'm gone. You know, whereas I'm like, I am not giving up. I'm digging in my heels. Even if I do buy, you know, I told you I want to buy a home. I'm keeping this place just, just because I feel like it has been the way I got this place and, you know, it was my brother, 
my sister's brother, long story, but it's also like this building was so black before. And I just feel like I need to stay here. It's just in me to feel like I am not giving up my, my black space in this all of a sudden new white space. You know, I, I also heard these so many conversations about the landlord saying things to the girl who actually couldn't tolerate the sound anymore. She left. She said that he said to her, I need to see more faces like you in this building. I was like, okay, now I'm staying. Because well, white? Yeah, she was white. Okay, I live on a block that that's happening to right now. I live in uh, Brooklyn, but between Flatbush and Crown Heights, it's right in the middle. And they built a luxury building at the end of my block. And then all of a sudden, and it was mostly West Indian and um, Orthodox Jewish on the street. And now it's just, you know, white people with bicycles and yeah, and dogs. But I do, I do feel like something very positive. I had this conversation actually with Judah Friedlander, you know, comedian Judah Friedlander, about how he is seeing that the average person, especially is affected by the pandemic, is now stepping up and complaining and becoming a part like me, like becoming a part of the community board meetings, taking over these buildings where they were not allowing people to thrive, that they wanted to get out. Like it's now like a push where, you know, white people are, you know, accessing their privilege and helping us out and becoming part of this, uh, you know, protest. So I would ask you this, Tony, with everything you were just saying, the Biden infrastructure plan to address racial inequities, does that fall into what you were just saying? Do, do you feel like, you know, having Kamala there, do you feel like that that's too broad, like that's too where they are? No, it has to happen at every single level, never either or, both and, right? So, and what I think is really interesting, you know, that they're playing out with this infrastructure bill is reframing what infrastructure is, right? Which means you are even reframing what you believe it is required to underpin, you know, our quality of life. Right. So infrastructure in this regard. Hold on a second. My door's being opening. You're hearing this. Okay. So her nice apartment, okay. which I would love to see someday. But go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> so they're completely reframing like what infrastructure is, right? Which I think is fantastic. Which is to say it is not just, you know our utilities and our roadways and our public transit, right? But the infrastructure towards a healthy society and a healthy economy also relies on us being healthy human beings, right? So that we're healthy enough to go to work, to keep the economy afloat, right? Uh, so how we care for people to be healthy enough to fuel the economy is important. Um, that people have safe places to live that are proximate to where they work so that we can rely less on, you know, congestion and freeways and support, you know, a density of riders for public transit so we can, you know, fuel a revenue stream that can fuel 21st century <laughs> infrastructure. Like, I, there's something about that that's kind of brilliant right? Which is, let's reframe the question and the problem we're trying to solve for such that we can get to a different place in the end. Now, it's astonishing to me, I shouldn't say astonishing, it's disappointing 
right? As always, the resistance to being uh, forward thinking, 21st century thinking about the problems. We're running on, you know, damn near 19th century infrastructure. <laughs> it's insane that this would be questioned, right? That there isn't, you know, the can-do-it ingenuity, like being the first man on the moon, to want to be the first country to put me in a railless bullet train, right? That can get me from New York to Chicago in two hours. Like, why is that not the imaginary that we're all rallying around that will in doing so have this ripple effect to address so many other issues that we have? Like as, as a designer, you know, who's trained to think about futures, you know, I, do, I just can't, I just, it's so disappointing that that doesn't feel like instinctive to people. Is it also just ignorance? Because like, you know, when we talk about the vaccine, a lot of people didn't understand that the vaccine was revolutionary because of ignorance. It's ignorance and it's politics. I mean, you know, when you come down to it too, when you watch how legislatively things play out, it's this political quackmire that we find ourselves in. So that's, that's what makes it frustrating and disappointing. It's strange that I'm just now realizing that my own statement, like a couple of years ago, I was talking to someone, I was like, God, white people live so well, not realizing the power of that. Like when I look at all these different places where, and and what, and, and the specifics of where they put us and what we have to deal with, you know, and why they wouldn't want to invest in, in this and fixing it is you, you would think they would be excited. It, you know, adva- I, it advantages. I don't know what you lose. And you make money it. from it. You, they make money from we it. We all win. We all we win. all win. So where's it's just really racism is evil. I mean, my God, it's it's like, you know, white people will kill themselves to just not give us something. And they could even use that infrastructure to be racist, too. I saw it happen in New Bedford. They built a highway right through the black neighborhoods, the historically black neighborhoods. Well, well, yeah. And the framing, you know, of this, right, is recognizing those histories, which I also just thought was really quite thoughtful. Like, you know, there was a time where we invested in the destruction of place, right, for this infrastructure, right, which has now saddled us with some of the challenges that we have. Now we can use infrastructure again, right, to advance us towards, you know, modern technologies that make our economy more efficient and redress the harm that we've done. But there are just some people who find that latter part that I added on so incredibly, not only offensive, but extractive of something that they have that they feel like is being taken away which is what I just think is the deeply problematic, you know, part of the legacy of racism in this country that is still very present in the way in which decisions are made. So your last last question has to be really optimistic because that one was, you know, that one was a Debbie Downer. (laughs) Um, I hope. Yeah, sorry about that. (laughs) Uh Okay. Well, I hope this one is, uh, my uncle was like, it's a controversy. He's talking about the placement of Obama's library in Jackson Park. Please state, and he says, please state that we cannot resist asking her opinion about this. That's what he said. So he can't resist it. Uncle Buzz cannot resist asking you 
about I, Obama's. I feel like Uncle Buzz has an opinion about this. <laughs> I mean, he did not tell me his opinion. Huh. He has not. Curious. Um, he has not said. Hmm. I, I'm I'm really excited that the presidential center is in Chicago and on the South Side, and I am fine with its location. And I, you know, it was just announced that it has overcome all of the criticisms and the hurdles um, uh, of placing it in one of these historic um, Olmsted parks. And there will probably forever be, you know, dissenting opinions about what people feel like should be in a park of that stature and what should not be and all the other things that are going to come with it. Um, in the end, history won't remember those squabbles. Most large-scale kind of projects like this have a colored history of disagreement. And what we remember about them is the impact that they make once they, they're here. And so my interest is more in, okay, it's here. And I love that it's here. And I like that it's in the park. The other option was to put it close to Washington Park, which I actually really, really loved because I spent the first two years of my life in Washington Park. My dad grew up in Washington Park, went to grammar school there. So there's a lot of family history there um, and, you know, tackles a different kind of urban challenge. But to put it on the South Side, um, situated near a collection of neighborhoods who have gone through all of their own histories from um, the Black migration, like both phases of the Black migration where Blacks, you know, moved up from the fields of the South to the industrial economy of the North, you know, to this area being known as the Black Belt or Black Metropolis, where you had the first Black bank, first Black insurance company, first Black newspapers. It was chock-a-block full of Black millionaires and entrepreneurs living next to working class people. So it was like, you know, the Harlem of Chicago, right? Uh, to then being this place of, you know, this deep land mutilation through urban renewal, right, and highways and things like that, to now having our first Black president have his center here. I mean, that's such an amazing, you know, narrative of land and neighborhoods and histories that we have to figure out a way to make benefit for those neighborhoods uh, and those people who have been there, whether it's through reparative methods, through restorative methods, through deepening ownership, by giving people more choice, by celebrating that this is the South Side of Chicago. Look, he's going in a park where the chosen few picnic is every year. That's right. And the home of house music. So like, hey. how does that... How does that all mash up to make this just the neighborhood of Black joy? There's, you know, my client always says this needs to be the dopest Black neighborhood in America. And so if this can be just one of the components of how that gets amplified, I'm like totally down for it. Like, let's get this thing going. So you are speaking my language yeah. when you bring up the chosen few pick. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah, honey. Well, I don't want to keep you. I want I you know what? Thank you so much, Tony, for being here. And just like the, so many listeners will learn so much from from this conversation. And I think, like you said, it's it's just that's the importance is like, how do we pivot? How do, what are our solutions? Listening to episodes like this, I hope will help, you know, disseminate the information, get it out there so people can be proactive you know, with this 
um, and not feel so overwhelmed by everything that's going on. So I really, really thank you for this. Um, and I will destroy that restaurant beneath me. Trust me. <laughs> yeah. Well, look, um, you, uh, keep me posted. I, I am now fully vaccinated. So whenever you want to go have a coffee or a cocktail, I am so down for that. Um, I will come to, I will come over to Freddie D. Uh, and then we could go, you know, down the street, uh, not to, yes. to the restaurant in question, but let me thank you. I mean, um, like what a treat to even the fact that uncle buzz found me and was such a strong advocate for you reaching out to me. So thank you, uncle buzz so much. Um, well, where can I listeners, where can they find you? So uh, a couple websites. So you can find a lot of the work we talked about earlier around the Just City values and things that we've been doing around uh, designing from a Just Cities at designforjustcities.org. I'm also a, a consultant. And I've been working in a lot of different cities in the United States. And I'm particularly interested in working in cities that have black populations that are trying to build black leadership, that are trying to build leadership collectively uh, to work on these issues. And so you can find my practice at urbanac.city. With friends like us, you just had a lot of black joy today. Ah, love it. <laughs> Nailed it. Nailed it. <laughs> no, yay. Oh. Where can I listeners find you and a friends like us? You can find me at noyecomedy.com. And I'm actually, I'm going to be on your show on April 8th, Marina's last virtual show. I'll just look out and next that, week. Oh, okay, well, yeah. okay. Well, I, okay. It was great <laughs> though. We had a great show. <laughs> we did a great, yes, we had a great show. Um, so you can find me at noyecomedy.com and that's N-O-N-Y-E comedy.com. And you can find me at The Stand. I'm going to be hosting a show there May 11th called sprung and i'm very excited for that and i'll have some content out and with friends like us you don't need gentrifier linguine okay you can just eat at our house i know how to make pasta <laughs> yes and dawn you can find me at uh dawn be funny on all platforms you can catch the pandemic show on friday nights so i'm on hiatus until i heal which i'll be back on um May 7th for the, with the pandemic show. And I did say, damn it, because pandemic. <laughs> um, and with friends like us, you will always know that black people get it back. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. We stay I love in the it. game. Just stay in the game. Yes. Friends, yes. We can stay in the game. Yes, and look at the cutie pie in the background. What a cutie. Hello, little cutie. Okay, thank you. Driving with friends like us, you can babysit him. Okay. Well, Marina Franklin here. Just go to my website, Marina Franklin. Dot com. Also check out Hysterical. It is available now on Hulu. Hysterical documents the trials and tribulations of female comedians. And I'm in it. And it's a great journey. So watch, learn, love. But with friends like us, you can learn how to have good quality of life when you have good friends. Yeah. Look at me. I'm so proud of I'm so so proud of myself. And then um, after I say one, two, three, after three, we all say check us out at the same time. One, two, three. Check, check us out. out. <laughs>